Well, by this time, your Bible might almost just fall open to 2 Corinthians, but uh, if it didn't automatically, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning. Um, uh, one quick reminder, forgot to mention it at the start of the service this evening, praise and prayer service, uh, 6 o'clock, and we're going to sing together, and we're going to pray together, and want to encourage you to come and plan on being here tonight and enjoying that, and uh, it was delightful. We, we started this as a practice in November. So every other month, second Sunday night, we spend time doing this, and then um, communion on the other months. And so this Sunday night is when we'll be doing that. And so I want to encourage you to be here, and uh, sometimes it's easy to get out of that habit, but want to remind you of that. And so uh, whatever you've got to do to be here, make sure that you're here. True wisdom. How do we think about doing uh, life, and how do we think about it when particularly uh, life seems so broken? And we left off in 2 Corinthians, and, and there's, there's no way I, I anticipate any of you really remembering this, uh, all the way back to Sunday before Thanksgiving. But we've been arriving at this kind of summit moment, this penultimate moment, where Paul is, uh, I would actually say it this way, bringing the concept of being a weak person, uh, which is a biblical theme, we'll look at that in just a moment, and serving Christ in the midst of your weakness. It is at the point of the argument that these super apostles, these false teachers, are using to accuse Paul and to deride his ministry. And so when we get into chapter 11 and through about half of chapter 12, it's all about Paul's defense of that, and there's so much for us to learn that way. Well, how do you think about weakness? Kitsuge is, is this Japanese beautiful art form where they take cracked pots, and instead of throwing them out, they fill in the cracks with gold. Uh, thereby, where the cracks, the things that might cause someone to say, this is useless, instead it becomes a beautiful art piece. But I don't think that's the way any of us normally think about weaknesses or cracks or fissures, certainly not when they are in our own personal lives. Certainly not when we're exposed to be weak, when we're exposed to be foolish, we're exposed in such a way that we don't feel very noble or respected, we're helpless and at times hopeless and not sure what to do. That is what is going on in this text as Paul's dealing with it. And I think the reality is we tend to approach weak and broken people of this world with a couple of different common attitudes. I think we might look at them with a sense of awe and respectability if they seem to overcome their disability. If they seem to somehow flourish. And uh, I read a number of articles over the years and was reminded even this past week, articles written by folks with Down syndrome saying, stop calling us heroes. We're just doing normal life. But if we don't have an affliction, a physical or mental disability, it's easy for us in one sense to just be in awe of someone, and that's the way we'll think about it, that they've overcome this. We respect them if they seem to have been able to rise above. And so whether it's Nick, who's a a uh, world-renowned public speaker, an inspirational speaker, whether it's Paralympians, the Olympics are going to start here just in a few weeks, and they will be accompanied by the Paralympics, or whether it's someone with Down syndrome or some other disease or disability or difficulty that makes someone, and if we're being honest with ourselves, frequently we think of it this way as less than us. We might view them with respect or with pity, with an attitude that that just brings us sorrow and we look at them and, and we understand that the disease and sickness and and difficulties of this world are all the result ultimately of the fall and so we think that everyone should be whole or perfect and then we come to a text of scripture where suddenly on some level we're supposed to embrace our weaknesses we're not supposed to hide them we're not supposed to even necessarily fill them with gold and make them look beautiful, although God is saying it is out of our weaknesses that his beauty is so often seen. And so what, what do we tend to do? If we look at, at the broken of this world, if we look at those that we view as disabled or somehow dysfunctional, if we tend to view them with awe and respect if they overcome or a mingled sense of pity, what do you and I tend to do then with our own weaknesses? Because we all have them. How do we tend to respond then to the broken areas of our own life? I think we tend to either land on one of two extremes. We tend to either brag about weaknesses that we have overcome because we have this internal nature that says, let me be proud of you for seeming to overcome your disability. And so if I have a weakness or had a weakness, let me tell you about how I conquered it. 
Uh, that's the root of every, it seems like every coaching business, whatever, uh, people who have lost weight, people who have become wealthy, it's, I had this weakness, let me tell you how I overcame it, and you can overcome yours too. And so as long as it's a weakness we can show that we've conquered, we'll brag about it. But if it's a weakness, a broken area of our lives that we can't seem to overcome, we can't seem to get past, we, we feel like is always with us, and well then we'll hide it. We'll deny it. Might even lie about it. We'll certainly pretend that it's not true because we're embarrassed about it. And so what is literally mind and soul warping is that the text of Scripture would actually call us to embrace them and see them as good things in God's hands. Now that is the uphill fight that Paul is waging. Somehow proving to this church in Corinth and and unfortunately, I think their culture is far too similar to our own culture. That the weaknesses and broken areas of our lives are actually incredible tools in the hands of God. To make it even more difficult for Paul, these people have known Paul. Paul has chosen to do life in an open and a transparent way with them. And so they know the weaknesses, they know the broken areas of his life. And so they actually look at Paul and they have these super apostles that are seeing, seeing every area was weak and he's broken. They don't pity them. Uh, they judge him that he hasn't seemed to overcome them. And they actually use these as accusations against Paul in their minds to prove why he has no business being an apostle or even to lead them. And so ultimately this morning, our takeaway will be this biblical truth that we're going to have to fight by the power of the Spirit and by faith to believe, and even more importantly than believing it, actually live it. And it's this, that God delights in showing his wisdom through the foolishness of his servants. Now, if you're taking notes this morning, you can actually switch out those words, wisdom and foolishness, with a couple of different things. You could say it this way, God delights in showing his strength through the weakness of his servants. Or God delights in showing his glory through the ignobility or the disrespectful nature of his servants. Whatever it is, it really boils down to this one central truth god is on mission to showcase his glory and he can so often and most frequently and delights in doing it through the ways that we are broken and so how do we work through that well the way paul does it and i'm working through this a little bit different this morning normally we just read this lengthy text and then we explain it but i think it'll help us to understand the structure and then we'll read it as we go along uh is really it's this concept called the full speech and it begins in earnest in chapter 11, verse 21b. It's a really, really, really bad verse break there. And it goes all the way down through at least the first several verses of chapter 12. Now, as Paul is getting into this, and we call it the fool's speech, because what Paul does is Paul takes on the role of a fool. And we'll explain that a little bit more in a moment, but just so maybe some of you that were here in November, this will click with you. Uh, he's literally playing the part of the role of the fool, the, the comic relief character in a Greek play. And we'll see this a little bit more specifically. But this concept, this theme of God's strength through our weakness is a biblical theme. It's not a Corinthian theme, although Paul uses it that way. This is actually something we see through all of the Bible, and so it's important for us to understand it that way. Uh, this theme, God working his strength, his wisdom, his glory, uh, through weak, foolish, ignoble, people you see it with noah and so god rescues the entire planet through one guy and his kids and noah is the kind of guy and, and he's a righteous man he loves god but he struggles and he has weaknesses and failures so much so that the first thing he does when he can plant something is he plants grapes so he can ferment them make wine and get drunk that's a weak dude or Abraham and Sarah, where God says, I'm going to build a nation. So he does it through this elderly, infertile couple. Through a man who's so cowardly, at times he lies about who his wife is. And through a wife who lacks faith, she spent her whole life infertile, that she laughs at what God promises. Through Jacob, who's a deceiver. Through Samson, who violates his Nazarite vows and is a womanizer and, and a 
fool, it seems like, and yet God uses him as a judge to help deliver his people. Through Ruth, who's a Moabitess, who had been raised uh, worshiping Chemosh, a god that they actually sacrificed their children to, she becomes actually part of the lineage of Jesus. Through David, this uh, teenage boy who defeats a giant. Through Manasseh, the most wicked king that Israel had ever known, who had sacrificed his own children, he gets taken away, they put hooks through his nose. It's one of the things the Babylonians would do, almost like you'd lead a cow. They led him in chains and fetters, marched him all the way back to Babylon, and in a Babylonian dungeon he repents. God brings him back and he helps to move the nation back towards God. God loves to use the weak and broken things. He uses Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? These guys have lost their parents. They're young. They seem like, what are they going to do? And yet they all stand for God in various ways and circumstances. Listen now, this is a biblical theme. We just came out of Christmas. Does God not delight in using the weak and foolish and ignoble things of this world? Things like shepherds who couldn't even testify in court are the ones that are worshiping and praising God. Three wise men who travel for a long period of time just to get there who are showing that Gentiles even worship. And the first sounds the baby Jesus hears when he's born is, the, is actually animal sounds. Because no one even make room for the king in his arrival. As Jesus grows up, they look at him and they say, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And so on one hand, some of the Jews, they look at him and they say, isn't his dad Joseph the carpenter? Who in the world does he think he is? And at another point in the Gospel of John, when they're really mad at Jesus, they let their real hearts out. And they say this to him. They say, well, at least we have one dad. What's that mean? That means they were taking shots at Jesus saying, we know Joseph isn't your dad. So what does that say about Mary, his mother? about who he is this is a biblical theme this isn't just here in corinthians it's certainly not just here in the new testament it is this concept and actually we see it show up strongly in the prophet jeremiah thus says the lord let not the wise man boast in his wisdom let not the mighty man boast in his might let not the rich man boast in his riches but let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. God wants to show his strength, his wisdom, his nobility, and he delights in doing that through very weak, foolish people. Now, Paul has now been developing this theme. And so all the way back in 1 Corinthians, he quotes this passage from Jeremiah, Paul perceives that in the church of Corinth, they have an unhealthy and an unrighteous perspective of weakness. And so he even tells me, there's not many, there's not many, tells them, there's not many rich among you, not many noble, not many wise, but that's what their hearts crave. Their hearts crave the respect of the world. And Paul quotes them from Jeremiah in 1 Corinthians because Paul perceives this about them. As their apostle and as the guy who founded the church, as a pastor who loves them, he perceives that they have this wrong view. And so he's starting to push back on it because he knows, listen now, Christians who think the key to ministry success is your strength, your wisdom, and your nobility are on a crash course for destruction. And you see, you see all the ten problems of the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians. He doesn't stop there. You get into 2 Corinthians and he quotes it again in chapter 10, verse 17. He reduces this Jeremiah passage. He distills it down to its most core essence, and it's this, let him that boasts, boast in the Lord. He takes chapters 3 and 4 of 2 Corinthians and talks about fruitfulness in ministry versus faithfulness in ministry. They looked at him and they said, where's all this fruit from your ministry? You must be a lousy apostle. You're weak. He talks about what it means to be a weak one serving God as a clay pot in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And all of that builds and builds and builds until we get to this summit here in chapters 11 and 12. This fool's speech. Paul climbs the summit of this teaching with this moment. And, and so it's important to know why does he choose this way to do it. Paul referenced himself a number of times as I'm being foolish. Uh, verse 16, it actually starts all the way back in chapter 11, verse 1. He says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. He goes on, and we worked our way through that. Verse 16, he says again, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do accept me as a fool, that I too may boast a little. These super apostles, these false teachers in Corinth, 
They were taking every area of Paul's weakness and they were saying, Paul's a fool. His ministry doesn't account for much. Where's all this fruitfulness? He's weak physically. He's not the best preacher. If we want that, we'll go to Apollos. Uh, he's in this for the money, but look at him. He's, he's dead poor. He won't let us send him money, but he'll work as a tent maker. Paul's not respectable. We shouldn't follow him. We shouldn't, we shouldn't listen to him. He's in it for himself, and his life's a disaster. He's weak. He's a fool. And Paul understands, though, that all of his ministry has been exactly what God has called him to do. So how do I get through to these people? Is what he's asking himself. How do I communicate to them that ultimately what they're doing is they're judging God in the way that he works? And so Paul, in this full speech, is using their argument against them. And the way he does it then is he, and I, I talked about this several weeks ago, uh, he put, cast himself in a particular role, and the role is as the fool. They were known as the fools. You went to the play. We, we don't, uh, many of us go to plays anymore. You might go to a movie, watch a TV show, what have you, um, do entertainment that way. But in their day, they went to the plays. And so they were either done in small towns in the city center, in the town center, or they'd actually have their own amphitheater. And you'd go there, and you'd sit down, and you'd watch a play. And there were plays all about a fool, um, and even serious plays would have a full character. You need a little bit of comic relief. The fool was known as the comic relief. Uh, you might remember I told you he dressed different, so you knew them immediately how they looked. When that guy came on the stage, you're like, oh, it's the fool. Uh, they said different things that were funny. They, they broke the tension that actually helps a play move forward. Even very serious movies or films or books will have moments of irony or humor, or even sarcasm. And so Paul says, okay, you're calling me a fool? Then I'm going to reach into your culture and communicate with you in such a way that will show you what you're really condemning. I'm going to show you that what you call foolish ministry is actually God-empowered and God-pleasing ministry. He's going to highlight what they think is foolish in order to put God's wisdom on display. Now, how is it structured? And this is where we'll start working our way through it. There are several types of fools from Greek plays, and we could actually go back and read Greek plays and see them, and um, some of the things Paul says are almost very nearly word-for-word quotes from the characters of the fools. And so we know that that's what he's doing. He's using these stereotypes in a specific way. It's cutting sarcasm, because if they're going to reject how God has been at work in Paul, the one they're really rejecting is God. To call Paul a fool is to say he's the fool of God who must also be a fool to work this way. And so let me give you three of them from the text. There's at least two others because there's overlap. And Paul mingles and mixes them and that would actually happen in plays as well. But I think just for sake of clarity and brevity, we'll look at three. Let's go to the first one and it's what we would call the leading slave fool. Verses 21 uh, second half of 21 through verse 23. Whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. The leading slave in Greek uh, plays was always scheming thinking and acting like he was wise when in fact all of his plans fail his actions come to nothing and the viewers see them as actually stupid Yosemite Sam is the classic example he's always got a plan on how he's going to defeat the bunny he's always got a plan on how he's going to get ahead and actually lots of the the guys in Looney Tunes would match this Wiley Coyote is another one. Him and Acme, he kept them in business. And remember, he's always got the boxes and the jets and will blow you up, and it always backfires on him. Well, in Greek plays, the leading slave was a stereotype, and he was always scheming and always declaring his own heritage, even though he's a slave, and so it would make no sense. It would be like somebody saying, now listen, my daddy was a slave, and my granddaddy was a slave, and my great-granddaddy was a slave, and we've all been slaves all the way along, so you should listen to me, the slave. And you'd like, why should I listen to you? Can we talk to your master? 
They would tend to brag about a heritage that made no sense. I was a criminal and my father was a criminal. We've all been thieves, so you should trust me with your money. What? And you'd laugh as the audience because it just makes no sense. Here's my plan. I've, listen now, I've been beaten and I've been robbed. I've experienced all these terrible things for what I've done, but you should go along with my plan. And if you have any brains, but you're like, you're the last one we're going with your plan. The leading slave stereotype was intended to kind of put a twist on people that brag about themselves all the time. Well, <clears throat> don't mean to say much, but these are the grades I got when I was in school, and these are the awards I won, and just saying. Uh, we have this new phenomenon in our culture of humble brag, right, where people post on social media the things that they've accomplished, and, you know, worked really hard, tried really hard, did all this, that, and the other. You know, sorry it turned out like this. And you look at it, and it's some cake they baked, and it, and it looks like Cake Boss baked it, right? I'm, it, it makes you feel like, I don't even know if I can crack eggs. You know, but they're like, but they're, look at this. There's this little part over here. It's not quite right. So sorry. Oh. I got a smoker. It'd be like a guy smoking meats, and he brings it to you and goes, yeah, I mean, here's the smoked pork that I made. 12 hours in the smoker, kept it at 212, it was amazing, but, you know, that, that, that bourbon glaze I put on it just kind of lost some of the flavor, I'm sorry, and you eat it, and it like melts in your mouth, you're like, oh, this is the best thing I've ever had, and I'm like, yeah, it just could have been a little smokier, a little bit better, and you're like, come on, that's this guy, they're making fun of that kind of mindset, and so the super apostles are running around, humble bragging, not really very humble, look at us, look at our plans, look at how our ministry turns out, look at Look at the church in Corinth. We're growing and flourishing and we're amazing. Look at all that we have done. And look what Paul's doing. And so Paul takes on this role to them. It doesn't seem to make much sense because he's enduring so much. Why would he endure so much just to follow Jesus? He, he's, he's doing things that are costing him all the time. Why do you keep doing the things you're doing, Paul, if your method of ministry keeps backfiring on you? Why does Yosemite Sam keep doing it if he always ends up uh, walking away with his face blown up and blackened and his mustache going everywhere? You're like, could you just give up at some point? Why does Paul keep doing ministry the way he does ministry if it keeps blowing up in his face. You know, it's been said before that the essence of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. And that's what they're saying about Paul. You keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, and you get the same results, rejection, disrespect, impoverished living. You must be a fool to keep doing this. So why wouldn't this world think that the Christian is foolish who thinks the answer is for me to keep speaking the gospel to you, to keep serving, to keep loving sacrificially, and most importantly, I'm going to keep on obeying God when it keeps costing you. This world looks at that and says that's foolish behavior. To keep on keeping on when it keeps hurting. And so he quotes the leading slave. The second one is the braggart warrior. We can pick this up in verse 24 through 33. There was this other stereotype because in roman culture uh when someone died and particularly a soldier or general before prior to their death they would commission a sculptor and an artist uh to make this huge marble and, and it really we can even think of it as headstones probably the easiest way for us to grasp it and it would list all of their accomplishments in detail and and then they die and they're in the ground and who cares and so they had this stereotype of guys that were constantly bragging, a politician or a general or a leading soldier that was always proclaiming all that they had done. And so they had this fool that would show up in the place, and he was known as the braggart warrior. And the braggart warrior would talk about all the brave things he'd done and all the people, the enemies he had killed and all the wealth that he had brought in and all the things he had done. And, and he was funny. He was comical. He made no sense. If some of you, I'm dating myself, but you remember Sergeant Schultz from Hogan's Heroes, and he's supposed to be the protecting guy, and you, you know, actually, he's a bumbling fool. And that's the way they looked at Paul. 
all the accomplishments of Paul, and they're like, you're a bumbling fool. And Paul's like, okay, well, let me take on that role. And so 11.24, down through verse 33, he does this. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Why would you be proud of that? Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fail and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows I'm not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. One of the awards that they would give to the Roman soldiers was the first one over the wall in conquering a city. Paul says this, I wasn't the first one over the wall, I was the first one out of the wall. All to serve Jesus. It's fascinating because when we look at courage, and we think about what, what is courage, um, we would say steadfastness in the face of fear, right? Courage is the absence of it, but acting in spite of it. And what Paul highlights is all the costs. And, and when he throws in there, I'm not lying. Uh, he's reminding them even of this braggart soldier that they would see in these stories who would heap praise upon himself to the point that you know it's not true. It can't be true, everything that he's claiming. It would be like a guy today saying, yeah, I uh, served in Afghanistan and, and I got the Bronze Star, the Silver Star. I um, got the Medal of Honor twice and, you know, it's been rough. It was good to serve. And you'd be like, you're a liar. Well, we understand in some sense why a person would want to brag about accomplishments. And they look at Paul and they're saying, what do you have to brag about? And Paul's like, fine, I'll brag about all this stuff. Do you think about what it would be like to live that way? Shipwrecked multiple times, beaten multiple times, imprisoned, abandoned, without food or sleep? All for the sake of following Jesus. Doesn't that make you want to get on board that team? Come follow Jesus and experience rejection from all your friends. Come follow Jesus and experience neglect. Come follow Jesus and lose your job. Come follow Jesus and not have enough food to eat or clothes to wear. Come follow Jesus and have to run out of the city because the king wants to kill you. And the super apostles looked at that and they said, that's crazy talk. You're a fool. You don't have to do ministry that way. You don't have to, to, to serve God in a way that costs so much. During Vietnam, there would be uh, these guys that wanted to be career military. And so most frequently, you'd have these lieutenants, first, second lieutenants. They'd uh, be recent graduates of some college or even West Point, and they get shipped over to Vietnam, and they're behind the scenes, and they're they're stationed in the rear echelon and they're supply guys and they're overseeing all kinds of things. I'm not saying it's not important, but it's not the same as combat. But these guys would want the combat badge on their uniform to wear. And so they would work it and, and finagle it so that they could get shipped out to a forward operating base, forward firing base. And they would convince them, command them, hey, let's take this unit and we're going to go out. And they want contact with the enemy so they can get a little combat badge. Meanwhile, you've got these other guys literally living in the mud and the muck and the mire. They're just trying to get their days in so they don't die at this pointless war that doesn't seem to be accomplishing anything that they didn't want they didn't sign up for but here they are because they weren't cowards who'd run to canada or draft dodgers they love their country enough i'm going to serve and then you've got this bright shiny faced little lieutenant doesn't even look like he shaved three times in his whole life and he wants to drag you out in the jungle so that he can have something to brag about 
And so you look at this comparison, and the super apostles have all this stuff they want to brag about. Clearly, they want to brag about how they've done ministry, so they're accepted. They've done ministry, so it's growing. They've done ministry, so it looks good, and it's shiny, and it cleans up really nice, and it's like the dress blues of ministry. And you've got Paul coming out of the jungle looking like he hasn't bathed in three weeks. His fatigue's fallen off of him. And they're saying, you are serving Jesus in a bad way because it shouldn't look like that. It should look like this. And which one appeals to people? And so Paul casts himself in this role of this braggart soldier, soldier fool. Paul has suffered much. He's endured much. Why? Why has Paul suffered so much? Why has he endured so much? What is the difference between the guy with his clothes falling off of him, mud all over him, he's got scars on him, his arms bandage up, and the dude that, that he had to take his fatigues out and rub him in the dirt just so the shiny buttons didn't attract the enemy. What's the difference? I'll tell you the difference. One of them was willing to be in the fight, and the other one runs from the fight. You experience what Paul experiences, listen to me now, when you get in the fight. If you tend to read Paul's litany and you think, Surely there's a way to do ministry and not suffer. Then you have forgotten what Jesus said when he said, take up your cross and follow me. Ministry will leave you scarred, bruised, battered, and with some purple hearts. That's the nature of the beast. Because we do follow the King of Kings, but I want to remind you, he came as a servant first. And he calls us to join him on a mission of service. Boy, isn't this so encouraging? New Year, oh, this is great. Let's wait for the next 51 weeks. But why would he do that? They judge Paul's suffering and his experiences to be the cowardly ranting of a fake soldier. Instead of seeing this truth about Paul, Paul is, has love-fueled courage that a true follower of Christ must have, and this will result in suffering. And then the third one. The third one is the learned imposter. In the Greek plays, the learned imposter was one who thought they were duping everyone else as like a con man, uh, but they are ultimately exposed to be a liar in the play. They're a fraud who by direct questioning are exposed to be trying to deceive everyone. And it was a tremendous point of humor in the play when finally this guy is revealed to be the fraud that everyone knows he is, but he claims the opposite. He's a little bit like the ignore the man behind the curtain from Oz. Or some of these fake, <laughs> they're all fake, but the psychics, right? Um, years and years ago, going back 20, 30, maybe 40 years ago, you'd have all these psychics and they would bend spoons, right? I'm going to hold the spoon and ooh, the spoon's going to bend. And they'd sit here and they'd think with their mind. There's this one guy um, that he was really popular, James Heydrich, and I think he showed up on the Tonight Show, a couple of different programs. He would like look at it like he'd have a book and he'd be staring at it and all the pages would start turning. They're like, ooh, look what I can do with my mind, right? And, you're, and there's every part of the audience, they, they, they totally don't want to believe but they can't explain it. And so then this other guy came along named James Randy. And he loved to expose these guys. And he's hilarious. He's, this, he's just got this, like, uh, I think Santa Claus-length white beard, bald head. Uh, so he looks the part. And he'd come on the show and he'd go, yeah, I can make a bent spoon bend too. And he, he'd show by using friction, different kind of spoon. All of a sudden it would warp. And he'd explain the science behind it. Or he'd turn the book this way and he would position himself in such a way they couldn't see it. And he's actually blowing the pages with his mouth. And so he would do things to adjust the scenario so that James Hydrick couldn't perform his little stunts. And he would say, yeah, I just am so tired because I was doing a lot of this yesterday with my mind. And you're like, yeah, right. And you laugh because it's funny when con men get exposed because they're lying to, other people for, lying to other people for gain. And then they get revealed. And one of the characters in a Greek play would be the old, wise, learned imposter. <laughs> And there was actually a guy in a Greek play that he would frequently, they would talk about all the eternal things they knew. They had gone to the beyond, to, to the eternal place, we would say heaven, and they could tell you what it was all about. I wonder if we've ever had that in our culture. I, I bet, <laughs> lose a little cutting sarcasm, I bet we've never had a youth pastor in the United States who takes his little five-year-old boy fills his brain with fake stories about heaven, and then makes a boatload of money selling books 
Because surely a little boy would never lie about his trip to heaven. And evangelical Christians buy it, hook, line, and sinker, and it's sold in top ten bestseller Christian nonfiction for years. Why would we even be duped by that? Because our deepest heart craving, our deepest heart craving is to know that this is true. And real con men and imposters will play on that. Well, this is true, and this is all you need. Not some fake vision of a five-year-old or some guy that says, I died and came back. You know what's interesting about that is Jesus said, one guy, when he tells us the parable, he said, the guy says, um, can I just go back and tell my brothers and warn them? And Jesus says, if they won't believe in me when I raise from the dead, they would never believe if someone came back. Now, Jesus said that. So do you really think Jesus is now on mission, sending people back from death to prove to you it's true? No. And so the learned imposter was this fool that you know is faking it, and eventually they're revealed. This is like the old uh, Ernest Angelis who claimed they could uh, heal people, and they got this little uh, speaker in their ear telling them so-and-so has this problem, so-and-so has this problem, and then they're exposed. This was the same kind. That's modern-day equivalence. And so Paul plays that role here with a vision he had really had. Chapter 12, verse 1. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, do not know. God knows. He heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool. For I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. The reality is there was a time of visions and dreams, and it was during the apostolic age and has passed on. And the reality is Paul had spent three years in the desert being personally discipled by Jesus. And so the super apostles would look at Paul and they would hear these stories. The super apostles, they had not seen Christ. We know Paul saw him on the road to Damascus. The super apostles had not been discipled by him. Paul had been discipled by him for three years. The super apostles had certainly not had any vision of heaven or, or been told by Christ exactly what it would be like, but Paul had. And so they look at Paul and they say he's a liar. They have to say that about him. You might remember what is the number one method a false teacher will use to destroy your idea, your concept, your foundation of the truth, they will attack the messengers who bring you the truth. Because if they can sow seeds of doubt in the messenger, it sows seeds of doubt in the message. And that's what they're doing with Paul. You know, the fact is that a person will die for something they believe to be true, but not for something they know to be a lie. So why do 11 or 10 of the 11 disciples, why are they all martyred? Why do they choose to die for something? Because they had seen the resurrected Christ. They knew it to be the truth. And so atheists and agnostics and skeptics, they look at it and they say, oh, they just knew it was a lie, but they couldn't give up all the money that it brought them and all the fame and power that it brought them. And you hear this from skeptics, and it's a little bit like, could you crack a history book here? Because these guys didn't die wealthy and with power and great following. They gave their lives for something they knew to be true, not for something that they believed was a lie. Paul has suffered all these things. Paul was at the peak, right? He is a Pharisee, and he's sent on missions by the Sanhedrin, and he's martyring Christians, and he has power and influence and wealth and honor, and he gives it all up for this. Why? Because he knows it's the truth. Why, what is there in it for Paul to make these claims if none of it is the truth? Paul's doing exactly, actually, what we would expect from someone to do who has seen Christ. Someone who's been transformed by Christ. He would relentlessly talk about it, suffer for it, be committed to it, and all for the sake of God and others. They judge his teaching to be self-serving, drivel. 
But all the facts point to something quite different. Paul concludes with this idea exactly in verse 6. Look at it again. He says, Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool. For I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. You know what he's saying? Look at what I live and hear what I say and make your judgment there. Not what you culturally think about wisdom and foolishness. Now, I think so then what happens is we hear the Corinthians looking at Paul and I've got to believe the vast majority of believers, if not all the believers certainly in this room, would hear of Paul's sufferings and his willingness to be abused and his persistence in loving, frankly, a church that was hard to love and rejecting constantly of his ministry and easily swayed and criticizing him and, and thinking evil of him. And we see Paul do that and we respect it. We, we look now a couple thousand years later and we're like, man, Paul was a soldier for the Lord. Paul ran the good race. Paul, Paul fought the good fight. Paul was honest and he had integrity and, and what a minister of the gospel, an apostle. And, and they were taking all of his weaknesses and they're making fun of them and they're taking all of his apparent failures and making much of them. And there's saying that there's a different way to serve Jesus and the Corinthians are wrong and it's easy for us to get on the side of the paw and here's the problem though here's the problem we're not willing to ask is that same thing actually in our hearts today and as Paul does this we could approach this text one way by saying boy those Corinthians they were sure messed up weren't they <laughs> glad God glad glad God rewards Paul in heaven Good sermon, amen, let's go. Praise God, I'm not in Corinth. That's one way. I think it's one way. I think the other way is to say, is there any chance that there's any of this in me? And so I want to ask, what, where are we in this story? I think there's two things that make this concept about weakness profoundly difficult for us. The fact that God delights... He delights. Now, that's a strong word. He delights. He receives joy. Uh, Christmas morning, I delighted watching my children open the presents. I delighted. I'm a dad. I looked at it, enjoyed it. I like it. It's fun. Um, gave one of our children a, a guitar this year. Knew he was going to be excited about it. Um, we played that trick as parents. He wanted one months ago. We said, well, you don't have enough money saved up to buy one. I just picked a number out of the sky. I knew he was never going to save up that much money to buy a guitar because we were already getting him one. And so we set it up, set up Christmas morning, and um, wife had this idea. We put this little note in a box and uh, put the guitar up in a bonus room, because I don't know, guitars are hard to wrap. <laughs> that's, that's a trick, folks. Like, you put that in one of those bags, and st stuff's sticking out, and it's pretty noticeable. If you put that under the tree, kid's going to come out in the morning, know it's a guitar. We didn't want that. We wanted to be able to see his face, right? So we put a note under the tree, wakes up Christmas morning. We delayed it, delayed it, delayed it, you know, and kids are doing stockings or whatever so now he opens his note oh it's upstairs his mom and i run upstairs we sit there and we're videoing and and here he comes in the room and he's just like what and it's funny and i'm crying i'm crying why would i cry because i just delight his mom and i delight and blessing your children with something that their heart's going to rejoice over. I'm telling you, God delights in showing his wisdom to the foolishness of his servants. And that is hard for us to wrestle with. And I think there's two things that make that really hard. Number one, culturally, we prize wisdom, strength, and respect. We live in that. We swim in a fish tank that culturally says, let's look for the wisest, strongest, and most respectable. And I'm telling us that God delights in using weak, foolish things. But we swim in an environment all the time where we look, we equate potential and its success with strengths. And God says, I'm on mission rescuing broken pottery. And so it's hard for us to buy into this concept. I think secondarily, secondarily, we know that God on some level does prize respectability. 
And so it's hard for us to equate this. So what we tend to do is we tend to think God prizes respectability. Because you have Galatians 5. Who should do ministry to others? Those who are in the Spirit. Which means you are walking and loving God and loving others more than yourself. Study Galatians 4 or 5, you'll get there. It's fine. That's what it means. It's not some mystical thing, but, but you can't do ministry if you're not loving God and others. So we know there's a qualification component. We look at Titus, uh, let the older men and older women teach these things. But there's some qualification there. It can't just be that you either got no hair or gray hair because the things you're teaching, you've got to be living a little bit. So some qualifications there. You go to Titus 1 or 1 Timothy chapter 3, elders, deacons. There's some qualifications there, and there are character qualifications. There's one gift qualifications for, for elders or pastors, but there's a lot of these character qualifications. So we know that God on some level prizes a respectability because you've got to have some qualification to do some things. And at the same time, we're swimming in the fish pond that says strength, nobility, wisdom, qualifies you to do and what we do is we then overlayer them and we think they're the same here hey listen now this is what i'm telling you the problem is our concept of what makes you qualified is not what he says makes you qualified and so it's hard then when i say things that what paul is saying is that god delights in showing his wisdom through foolishness god delights in showing his strength through weakness, he delights in showing his glory through our ignobility. And so we have now come to the summit. Biblical theology, Corinthian theme. And so it is time then at the end of this to ask, where is your thinking on this issue? And more importantly, where is your behavior then? Because we can claim we believe something, but what we do actually reveals it. And I think there's three categories that we can think about. First of all, lost man thinking. The lost man's approach here is found most clearly in the super apostles of Corinth and some of their followers. And here's the way they think. Weakness, listen now, weakness is a problem to be solved. Weakness is a sin to be corrected or a hindrance to be denied. Lack of respectability in this world damages the gospel. Lack of obvious fruitfulness in ministry is an indicator of failure. God is most glorified when the world perceives his followers as wise, strong, and respected. That is lost man thinking. Do you think that way? Now, some of you are immediately going to say, well, I know I follow Jesus, so I must not. <clears throat> This is one of those moments I wish it was like family food and I could hit this button, and the big red X. Because remember, we're being told that we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Like, you don't repent, believe in Jesus, and suddenly think everything correctly. That's not the way it works. This fleshes out in two dominant ways. So maybe you're like, man, I don't know if I think that way, because most, most of us don't think a lot about our thinking. So I'm going to give you some actions then. I think it fleshes out in two dominant ways. So I think lost man thinking about weakness comes out of you practically two ways. First of all, first of all, listen now, it judges the weaknesses of those around you and probably your own life with false judgment. You know, we have this phrase, we actually, <laughs> it's amazing what we do, right? We got this phrase, um, what do we say? I'm my harshest critic. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands if you've ever said that. I have. So if you were to raise your hand, you raise your hand with me. I'm a harsh critic. Can I just tell you what that's saying? I know I'm weak, and I'm working on it, so I don't need you to talk to me about my weaknesses. Anything you say isn't quite measuring up to how I talk to me about my weaknesses. That is not a humble approach to the broken areas of our lives. We tend to judge others' weaknesses and failures and ignobilities harshly and we probably judge our own lives also with false judgment it looks at things like a lack of fruit second corinthians three and four and judges that the ministry must be wrong or a failure it looks at relational rejection somebody's cut them off somebody's denied them they've lost friendships relationships whatever and it assumes then they must be wrong or a failure it looks at physical suffering and assumes it's God's judgment or chastening. It looks at avoiding unnecessary conflict and automatically casts it as cowardice. 
the first way it fleshes out that you might have lost man thinking about weakness is this wrong judgment of yourself and others. Secondly, secondly, and I, and I actually think this is most common, it deals in shame with areas of personal weakness. This self-judgment and shame comes out in hiding who you are from others. You can hide behind legalism like the Pharisees. You can hide by isolating yourselves from others. You can hide by having shallow relationships. You can become a bully who attacks the weaknesses of others to mask your own sense of inferiority. All of these boil down to one thing, shame. Shame about where you are foolish, shame about where you are weak, shame about where you are poor, shame about where you are ignoble. Where's your thinking and behavior? I think on the other end of the spectrum, there would be godly thinking, holy thinking. It's God's perspective. And then God's perspective is he looks at me and he says, he looks at Paul with all of Paul's brokenness and weakness, and he says, you are made whole in Jesus. You are strong through my strength. You are wise through my wisdom. You, are, you will share in my glory even as we are being changed from glory to glory. What the world despises, listen now, God prizes. And that is humble servants, deeply in love with him, driven for his kingdom and not their own. Our weaknesses are his delight to manifest his glory. That would be holy thinking. That's the other end of the spectrum. And so the reality is, you and I are living on a journey from one to the other. And so that gives us our third category, sanctifying thinking. I tried to put them all in S's. First one would be stinking thinking, right? But couldn't come up with a good one for the middle one. But this is sanctifying thinking. It's a journey towards this truth. Let me give it to you in two ways with a new perspective. Toward others. How should you view others around you, people that God has put in your life? The weaknesses of the people around me are not primarily areas for me to forbear. I think that's how most of us tend to think, and that's, that's still lost man thinking. Man, so-and-so is weak in this regard. So-and-so is foolish in this regard. So-and-so is this. Man, it's just hard. They are hard to put up with. You know what? That's what it is. Jesus is working on me with patience. Now, I'm not going to deny you need some patience. I am going to say, way to skim the surface, time to dig a little deeper. Because the reality is the very weakness that you think you're putting up with in sanctifying thinking is recognizing it's the exact weakness he wants to work through toward you. What if God hasn't surrounded you with weak, broken people to teach you to put up with people primarily? I know I'm going to step on some toes here. I'm just, okay. It's one of those moments I'm like, yeah. It's not primarily to teach you to put up with them. But you're such a hot mess that he's got to surround you with messy people to get through you to you. Ouch! What if God looks at you and he says, man, I love you. And I'm going to change you because I want to use you in a powerful and profound way. But the best way for me to do that is to surround you with weaknesses and broken people so that you, you know what you need? <laughs> Steve needs so much of my wisdom, I got to surround him with people that frustrate him at Walmart. He needs so much of my strength, I'm going to surround him with weakness. He needs to be so much on mission for my glory, I'm going to surround him with people that aren't very glorious. That is sanctifying thinking. Because that's really hard. It's really frustrating. I start to look at other people when you're sanctifying thinking and you're realizing their suffering will be for my growth and comfort. Why do I say that? Because Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1, I've suffered for your sake so that I can comfort you and you can receive comfort. That means that, like, I'm just going to go there, right? Right, why not? That means peach fats, listen, has leukemia for you. Yes, it's for him. 
Janelle's is laid up for you. Laura Barajo's brother died this few weeks ago. For you. God is surrounding us with hurt, suffering, weak, broken, foolish people because He loves us. And He's on mission for His glory in us and toward us. And so suddenly, people in your life and in your church community, they don't become eh, boxes to check, eh, take care of, there's one over here. But instead, you, you suddenly realize they are conduits of his glory toward you. You start realizing that their faithfulness will inspire you to stay faithful. Their fighting will remind you that fighting is not failing. Their humility will be a superconductor of God's grace in their life, which is the very power of God I need in my life. Sanctifying thinking towards others realizes I need to be increasingly grateful for the broken and weak people God has brought into my life because he can use them in a profound way to show his wisdom, power, and nobility. Now, I just name people, and I guess what? Like, honestly, pastorally, I feel like I could actually go person by person. So please don't feel ignored. Then secondarily, toward your own journey. Sanctifying thinking in your own journey is important. Now, Paul struggled here. Paul actually struggled here and part of his process of growth about weakness was to come to understand a vital truth. And we know this because what's he start begging God to do? Take away the thing that's making me weak, God. Uh, to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing, verse 7, chapter 12, keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan harassed me. I'm not going to park here long. There's argument. Was this physical? Was it a person? Um, I may unpack it at some future point. The reality is it's effect. It's a God-ordained, painful thing. You ever had a thorn? It's painful. It sticks in you. It's working in you. And it's to keep him from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, that I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. Listen, in our own journey, it is our tendency to think still that strength, wisdom, nobility is the answer. And specifically, we think uh, my weakness, my brokenness, my foolishness, my, my I don't know what to do, God, my suffering, my weariness. Man, if God would just take this from me, look how more effective I would be. And so let's just put it purely on that level. You're not wanting God to fix all the cracks in your pot so that you look better. You want God to fix all the cracks in your pot because you feel like you could carry some more holy water to people that are thirsty. And sanctifying thinking is on a journey like Paul to recognize that God's doing a bigger mission than you being able to carry holy water to quench the thirsty. He's on a mission to change you. Sanctifying thinking means that some of the things that make us weak are directly ordained by God for our growth and sanctification. It's a thorn. You can't ignore it. It distracts you. I mean, imagine if you had a thorn right now. Right now, right? Like it's in your, you're trying to write with your pen, take notes, and it's like, oh, it's right there. You can't wait to get out and tweeze it up and mess it out. Put in your shoe. It's like, oh, every time I step... It's a thorn. It's just needling at you all the time. What are the thorns of our lives? It's something that would be distracting to you, something painful to you, annoying to you. And listen now, it makes you run to God. Ooh, now wait a minute. Wait a minute. Now, if the th I don't want the pain of it. I definitely don't want the suffering of it. And the annoyance of it is just frustrating. But am I completely convinced I want God to take the things out of my life that make me run to him? I don't think so. Not when I'm beginning to be transformed by the renewal of my mind. Listen, it could be a particular temptation. It could be a person. It could be a physical issue. It could be emotional or mental. But it's something you can't change and makes you run to God. Sanctifying thinking embraces the truth that God is on mission to change you He's in some ways more burdened about a changing servant 
than he is about how much more successful or effective we would be without this weakness. And the mission God is on to change you is not so that you would be visibly, knowably stronger, wiser, and more respected. It's that you would be more like Jesus. Oh. And my comfort then is not that I'm a cracked clay pot full of holes and fissures on the ash heap of life. But that's a good thing because that's the exact kind of pot he's looking for to use to show his glory. And he's going to then rescue you and put you in a community surrounded with other people just like that. And suddenly in my heart I realize these weaknesses in my life these areas where I feel broken and unwise and foolish and ignoble become constant reminders of his glory and his love and his affection for me. And the thing that I realize that all the people that I love the most, and the reality is this, this is, this is just those ironic moments. In this room are, are probably 80% of the people in my life that I love the most. That you need Jesus. You don't need me. And so the more broken, cracked, and messed up I am should actually give you a better chance to see Jesus, the one you really need. And in that moment, your thinking begins to become gratitude. Because then you're reminded, God loves all those people that I love too. And he knows exactly what they, want, what they need. And he wants to do that through you. Will you embrace sanctifying thinking to recognize that God delights in showing his wisdom through the foolishness of his servant? May we be the servants that show Jesus. Father, we thank you for true wisdom. We thank you for kindness and forbearance. We thank you, Father, that you do not look upon us with frustration as your children. Father, that you are changing us, but not to eliminate all these breaks and cracks in our lives, but you're changing us so that Christ might shine brighter through them. And so, Father, would you help us to love and serve one another with that mindset and with that heart that we might know and see Jesus better. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.